Hey guys, this is the Real Life Monopoly Podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. We are real estate investors, and the point of our podcast is to help you reach your financial goals, which will allow you to have time to focus on your true passion so that you can live not only a happier, but more fulfilled life. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, today on the show, we're going to be having Brian Burke out of Santa Rosa, California. Brian is the president and CEO of Praxis Capital. And he's also the author of the book called Hands-Off Investor, an insider's guide to investing in passive real estate syndications. His primary focus is 150-plus unit apartment complexes. And over the last 30 years, Brian has done over 500 single-family flips, owned over 100 single-family rentals, and done residential and commercial development, self-storage, hospitality, vacant land, and commercial deals. He has purchased over a half a billion dollars worth of real estate, including over 3,000 apartment units, and he has raised over $100 million from investors. Brian is a great guest, and we're very excited to have him, and without further ado, let's get to it. Thank you for tuning in with the Donis Brothers. This is your co-host and host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my two brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. And uh, today, we will be having Brian Burke. Brian, if you don't mind just introducing yourself to the audience. Yeah, how's it going, uh, guys? Uh, great to be here. Brian Burke, President and CEO of Praxis Capital. Awesome, Brian. Hope you've been having a good day so far. Oh, absolutely. How about you? Yeah, it's been pretty good. Right on. Yeah, but um, we really just wanted you to give the audience a background as to how you got started in real estate. We know that you're really big in the multifamily space. Do you mind giving us a background as to how you got started? Yeah, I got started in single family, uh, doing uh, single family fix and flip, just buying houses, fixing them up and reselling them. I was buying foreclosures at the courthouse steps at auction, uh, fixing them up and uh, and selling them. And uh, when uh, when the market collapsed back in uh, in uh, two thousand eight and nine, uh, we started doing a lot of flips. We were raising a lot of money, and we were doing about a hundred houses a year. And you know, I looked at it and said, you know, geez, these, these foreclosures are going to be around for about, you know, maybe three, four, five years. And then what are we going to do with all this money we've been raising? So uh, decided that it was it was probably a wise decision to find a business that was more scalable, uh, a little bit more sustainable, yeah. something that we could grow, you know, along with our investor base. And, and multifamily was really the answer. And uh, And that's when we really turned a lot of our focus towards multifamily and uh, and started buying mm-hmm. uh, uh, properties all across the country. Awesome. So um, you pretty much started, I, I saw in your bigger pockets just about 32 years ago. Um, it seems like you have a lot of experience. And I know that you had mentioned it was because of the economies of scale that you kind of wanted to transition, which is the same reason we moved um, into the multifamily space. What were some of like the hardships and how, how, how did you end up making that decision? Was it something that you did overnight? Or was it something that you really had to think long and hard on? Um, geez, you know the the hard the hardships were uh, were endless <laughs> in the beginning. You know, it, it mm-hmm. seems like such a monumentous task to uh, to do something uh, like this. You know, the first multifamily investment I made was about twenty years ago, and it was a sixteen unit apartment building. I had done a ten thirty one wow. exchange from two single family properties into a sixteen unit building here in California. And that's how I got started in multifamily. And at first I had a property management company that was handling it. 
and I didn't like the job they were doing. So I thought oh, I could do better than this. So uh, <laughs> I hired a, an on-site manager to live in an apartment. I gave him a discount on the rent, and his job was to collect the rent and handle the maintenance. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it, it was it was really tough because find, finding someone that's willing to do that and qualified to do that and does it well is enormously difficult. And yeah. it took two or three or four different tries to find the right person. And even when I did, uh, I found a great guy who took really good care of it, but you know, just you know, wasn't really uh, aggressive enough. And I, you know, by that I just mean, uh, you know, the rent didn't always get collected on time. Sometimes it took a little while to get the maintenance stuff handled. Uh, you know, to his credit, he was enormously honest, and that was really what you know was difficult to find somebody that was honest. So he was honest, but he was a little slow. So I decided eventually I needed to hire a property management company again. And so then, you know, hired another management company and you kind of go through all these different struggles of trying to figure out, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And eventually, you you know, you you learn a lot of lessons and and you get the right recipe. Awesome. So I heard you uh, briefly touched on your first deal. Uh, Do you mind kind of going into uh, how you did it? Um, Was it something that you kind of just fell across on or was it something that you uh, were intentional about? Um, Do you mind giving the audience an idea? Because a lot of the majority of, of our listeners are people who are looking to get into multifamily, but they really don't know how to get started. Yeah, my first multifamily deal came when I had I had probably done, I don't know, three or four or five dozen single family deals. So, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50 single family deals. I don't remember how many. And uh, I was looking to grow into multifamily because it made a lot of sense to me to have that economy of scale. But I knew nothing about uh, how um, commercial real estate worked. I didn't know what an income statement even was really, let alone how to read one. So uh, I reached out to the broker that was doing a lot of my uh, sales of my flips because he was a CCIM, a commercial uh, real estate broker. And I said, hey, you know, I know you do a lot of commercial stuff. I'm kind of interested in that. Can you help me figure out you know, how to do it? And so he says, yeah, come on into the office. I went in there and he kind of showed me how to read an income statement, uh, you know, things to look for, what to look for in a rent roll, and just kind of showed me the ropes and you know, spent a couple hours with me. It was enormously helpful. And I read a bunch of books. And then finally, it was about uh, maybe a couple months later, uh, he told me that he had a listing coming up uh, of an apartment building that this guy was selling. And I said, well, that's cool because I have these two houses I'm selling. I could do a 1031 exchange. Uh, so I, I uh, said, can I put in an offer on it? And he's like, yeah, sure. So we write the offer. And I, I asked the seller to carry back 10% of the down payment because mm-hmm. my, my 1031, even with the two houses, was only going to be enough for about 10%. So the seller carried back 10%. I put down 10% from the exchange. Then a bank financed the other 80%. And that was how I got my first multifamily deal kind of going into it. So your first deal that you've ever done, you kind of built that connection or you already had that connection with the broker um, as he had helped you previously before, which we have found that's very important in this space. But you kind of set it up in in an interesting or creative structure for your first deal, uh, kind of having the seller carry back some of that fund. So I definitely like that. That's, That's very interesting. Do you do that often? Uh, no, I rarely ever do it. In fact, uh, that was the last time I did it. And that was 20 something years ago. And it's, it's really hard to get people to agree to do that. You know, it, I didn't know any better. I thought, well, you know, Hey, I read in a book somewhere. You should ask them to carry back half the down payment. I'll give it a try. And he just happened to say yes. So it's, uh, it's interesting how that, uh, you know, how that worked out. Awesome. And you did touch a little bit about that broken relationship. Um, for someone starting out, could you kind of go into how important it is to cultivate those broker relationships and how they should approach that if they're just 
you know, new new to the space. It's critical. I mean, without a without a broker relationship, you've got nothing, you know, because the broker is the gatekeeper to the seller. And, you know, the having been a seller many, many times, I know how the conversation goes on the other side because I'm the one asking the question. Right. So let, let me flip your question around for a minute and tell you what it's like from the role of a seller. Uh, when when we have a property that we're, we've listed on the market, we'll get a number of offers. Almost every time we'll have multiple offers. And my first question to the broker, you know, is, is really, okay, tell me about these groups. You know, who have you transacted with before? How did that go? Uh, you know, how did they act in the transaction? You know, did they close? Where's their equity coming from? You know, these are all the questions that we're asking the broker. And so when the broker goes, okay, well, you know, these guys have a strong offer. But we've never worked with them. Uh, we don't know them. We've never done a deal with them. Uh you know, all things being equal, we're going to set that offer aside. Uh, and we're going to focus on the one where the broker tells me, oh, we just closed two deals with them. They didn't retrade. They closed on time. They hit all the timelines. They weren't a pain in the ass. All of that stuff. You know, that's that's what I want to hear. And that's that's who we're going to pick. So that broker relationship is absolutely critical. Now, unfortunately, the only real way to get that broker relationship is to do a deal with them. And so now you've got this whole chicken and the egg scenario, right? It's like, okay, well, how do you uh, do a deal if they won't give you a deal if you haven't done a deal? Uh, and and that, that is a difficult, difficult challenge to solve. So one way to solve that challenge is if you've done a deal with another broker in another area is say, well, hey, uh, call this guy because we did a deal with him and, and, and he'll tell you, you know, how we how we were and what we did and all that kind of stuff. Use that uh, other broker as a reference. That's a really strong uh, way to begin a relationship with a broker. Uh, you know, the only other thing you could do is, you know, if you buy some other property in the sub in that market. You know, you, you want to buy a hundred unit building. Well, you know, go buy a tenplex. Uh, you know, and then when you're, you know, when you go to buy the hundred unit, you know, it's not like, no, we don't own anything there. We don't know that market. Now you're like, we own a 10 unit building, not too far from here. And, you know, we're expanding into larger properties, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. So that's, that's kind of another way, but really people think all the time that you can build a relationship with a broker by, you know, sending them baseball game tickets or, uh, talking to them on the phone or, you know, having repeated calls with them and that sort of stuff. And and sure, you can kind of get to know them uh, that way, but to build a real relationship where they're going to recommend that a seller accepts your offer, you've got to transact with them or with somebody that they know. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what is your favorite deal and why was it your favorite deal? Oh, my gosh. You know, I've done about 760. <laughs> So and there, there's a there's a lot of them I don't even remember. I mean, it's funny. Somebody will ask me like, oh, you know, one, two, three Main Street and be like, did we own that? <laughs> uh, so I uh, got a favorite deal. I, you know, I heck, I don't know. But I'll tell you uh, what my favorite one is now, uh, just because, uh, you know, it was a big check in the bank. You know, we just sold a deal in Tampa, Florida that we we bought uh, three years ago. We sold it in August. It was uh, 230-something units uh, that uh, we delivered a 33% net or uh, 33% yeah 33% net IRR to our investors uh, in a three-year period, and and that makes it my favorite deal that comes to mind right now because that's awesome performance and something that's very difficult to duplicate. So it's something for us to be proud of. Keep diving into that. So what did you guys? 
buy it at? And what was like the business plan for that property? And then what did you guys end up exiting at during that three-year period? Yeah, we, we bought that property for somewhere around $18 million. Uh, we sold it for over 31, I think, uh, three years later. Uh, we, uh, uh, we immediately began, after buying it, a renovation program where uh, you know, we, we built a, a resort-style grill area outside. We renovated the leasing office and clubhouse, uh, totally uh, spruced up the tour path. Uh, put in a putting green, a little bridge over a dry creek. I mean, just all kinds of nice little uh, exterior amenities. And then we enhanced the interiors with, you know, like a wood-look flooring and new appliances and and, um, and paint fixtures, all that stuff. Uh, raised rents pretty substantially. You know, it, as as units would vacate, we'd rent them to the next person for a couple hundred dollars more than the first uh, person that was in there. And then we... Um, uh, and then, and then we uh, we put it on the market, and we uh, we got oh geez, I think it was seventeen offers or something like that on it. Uh, it was a great property and uh, something we'd uh, love to do over and over and over again. I was doing some research on top of multifamily books, and and your book came up, the Hands Off Investor. It was one of the top books, and um, I just wanted to touch on that. I was curious, what was your inspiration for that book, and and what do you hope that people when they read it get out of it? Yeah, the um, uh, it, it's. I was trying to figure out. You know, I've, I've been told for years I should write a book, and I always resisted doing it because it's a major time commitment. But uh, finally, the idea uh, came along that, uh, that that somebody needed to write a book to teach passive investors how to properly invest in a syndicated offering. And I did some research on this and found there really wasn't any books out there that that really told the complete story on. Uh, how to select uh, a syndication sponsor to invest with, how to analyze the opportunities that they present to you, uh, and how to invest in those opportunities and what things, you know, kind of what the process looks like and what to look out for and, you know, all the different ways the sponsor can try to screw you. Uh, I, I wanted to expose all of that from basically from an industry insider's perspective because I know all the tricks. I know where you can where you can hide skeletons and I wanted to be able to kind of uh, put that out there in the world so people could see it. One of the inspirations for that, too, was a friend of mine who invested in a, a passive offering and lost her entire life savings when it turned out that the guy that she invested with was a crook. Uh, you know, now he's in prison, but, you know, she's completely flat out broke. And uh, I, I didn't ever want to see that happen to anyone. And I felt like if I could uh, if I could show people what you know, some of the things to look for, and I could prevent that from happening to one person, then the whole experience of writing uh, that book will have been worth it. Just to kind of follow up with that, what are some red flags uh, that you would encourage passive investors to look out for when looking for a sponsorship, a sponsor, and a, a syndication deal that they would potentially consider investing in? Yeah, you know, there's so many red flags. I actually uh, made a little section in in the book, like, it, it, like in every chapter, there's like a little gray box with, you know, like this is something to watch out for, right? Because it's like if you, even if you don't read the rest of it, at least read the gray boxes, uh, you know, because there's a lot of things. I mean, you know, really the, the main thing comes down to the sponsor themselves. That's the most important and critical element of any passive investment is the sponsor you're investing with. 
their integrity, uh, their transparency, their honesty, uh, that's that's more important than any other factor uh, in an investment program. So, you know, red flags obviously are, you know, convicted felons and, you know, kind of the basic, you know, kind of stuff. But but also red flags to me, you know, and this isn't a slant against people that are new in the industry because everybody has to start somewhere. But, uh, you know, you've got to really be careful when you're investing with someone that hasn't done it before. Uh, so, you know, watch for... Uh, you know, some of the red flags are, you know, have they uh, ever bought, managed, and sold an asset successfully? And in other words, uh, you know, you want to know that your pilot not only knows how to take off, but do they know how to land? Uh, you know, you, you want to you see that they've been able to do that. Um, other red flags on the deal level, uh, things like uh, uh, sometimes you'll find uh, sponsors tweaking with the assumptions, and that's a that's a big red flag. Kind of a simple one that I always tell people, and this is like my five second check on uh, on a syndication offering is look at the uh, projected first year uh, effective gross income. Just look at that line and compare that to the previous twelve months effective gross income that the uh, that the seller has experienced. And if there's a big jump in that number, that's a major red flag because that tells me that not only are you not going to hit that uh, return because it's very, very difficult to increase income rapidly. It takes time. Uh, but it also shows that the sponsor is probably not using very good assumptions, is probably manipulating the numbers to make the returns look better, uh, and uh, is probably hiding a few other things and fumbling uh, the ball or, or does, just flat out doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, and so that's that check only takes you a couple seconds, but it will tell you a lot. Going with someone new is something that people should look out for, right? They should we want to make sure they have a track record. Uh, they successfully have gotten a property and then eventually closed on it. Because um, like you said, like the metaphor that we always like to use and that you just brought up, uh, you wouldn't want to get in a plane with a pilot, if, especially if they don't know how to land a plane. <laughs> you don't know if you're going to land safely, right? So um, my question to you is, if there's someone that's new that hasn't doesn't necessarily have a track record, how do you recommend they go about getting that asset under contract, uh, making sure they can manage it correctly, and then hopefully eventually and say whatever amount of hold period that they plan on having the property, um, eventually selling it? So what advice do you have for any new person that's looking to build that track record? Yeah, there's there's two different ways to, to, to tackle this. Uh, there's the, the way I used, uh, which, you know, it worked really, really well, but I don't know that I recommend it for everyone because it takes a long time. Uh, and that is to develop that track record incrementally. And, I, I, you know, so that means, uh, you know, go flip a house and then buy a rental house and successfully manage it and then sell it. And then a duplex and then a fourplex and then, you know, a 10 unit and then a 50 unit and then, a, you know, do this repeatedly and show people what you've done. Uh, you know, keep a record of every transaction that you've done. Uh, pictures, performance, all that stuff, really build a good solid portfolio that you can show people what you've been able to accomplish. That's how I did it. Uh, the other way to do it uh, is probably a faster way, uh, and that is, is to partner with someone and bring someone in that has that experience, uh, that has that track record, uh, you know, and, and that may be that you bring them in or that might mean they bring you into their deal. Uh, you know, you know, one way or the other, uh, you know, having that exposure to it makes a big difference. But one thing that you can't do is, you know, you, 
people will say like, oh, I'm going to go do my first real estate deal and I'm going to, I want it to be a hundred units. And, and I equate that kind of like, imagine yourself, you're standing in your backyard and you want, you need to get up on the roof. Mm-hmm. There's two ways to get up there. Uh, you can climb a ladder or you can try to jump up. And if you try to jump up on the roof, chances are uh, you're probably not going to make it and you very well might break your leg. Uh, <laughs> but if you take the ladder, uh, you're probably for sure going to get there. It's just going to take longer, uh, but you'll probably get there in one piece. It's something I, I feel like I've heard you say that on a podcast before. <laughs> I've heard that metaphor before, but um, it's that definitely was, something that was probably that... me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know that you had mentioned when my brother asked a question regarding the LP and pretty much making sure that the uh, investor they're going with has that track record um, as someone that can obviously handle their money correctly. Um, what was the way that you first ended up funding your first deal? Was it a syndication or was it something that you just funded yourself? Because I do know you had experience in the single family. So did you just transfer that money that you had generated through that business over into buying that asset or did you syndicate it? Well, the first thing I always did is I, I always used my own resources to prove out my strategy before I brought anybody else's money at risk. So when I did my first single families, I mean, you, the first one I did, I got the seller to carry back the entire down payment. The second one I did, I used my credit cards. I cash advanced my credit cards to come up with the money to uh, to buy my second one. Uh, my third one, I got a signature line of credit from the bank, and I used the signature line of credit to uh, uh, to buy another house and you know fix it up and resell it. I had done a, about a dozen of those before I ever went to an investor and asked them to put up their money to fund what I was doing. And, you know, the downside is, is that takes forever because, you know, I could only do one deal at a time, uh, you know, because I only had so much resources I could cobble up. But I needed to establish myself because, you know, for me, I didn't know anybody that had money. You know, I, I didn't come from a wealthy family. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't well connected. I, I knew no one and I had nothing. So, you know, I had to kind of prove that I could do what I said I could do before I could even dream of finding somebody else's money to, to put in. So after I did, uh, you know, about a, a half, a, about a dozen or so deals, I found a private money lender that would give me loans to buy houses. And I was buying the houses so cheap that uh, if they gave me a loan at 70% to the market value, it was literally 100% of the purchase price because I was you know, buying them at a discount. And so I did that about a dozen times. And then you know, I had kind of solidified my track record. And then, and then what I did is I went to my, uh, my coworkers and uh, I raised a fund from my coworkers that they put in. I had a minimum investment of $5,000, if you can believe it. And uh, I raised 500 grand from my coworkers, uh, and I used that money to go to the auction and buy houses on the courthouse steps and fix them up and resell them. And I did that over and over and over and over and over and over, uh, using the same money, the same 500 grand. And then when uh, when I was expanded into multifamily, you know, again I did my first multifamily deal it was a 1031 exchange I did from my own rentals that I sold, uh, and and then I did another one uh, that I did with. Uh, uh, so I think the second one, I had the seller carry back uh, part of the down payment on the second one, too, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and I used a credit line uh, for the rest of the down payment. And then, uh, you know, it wasn't until later on when I had kind of proven out the multifamily thesis 
that I then was ready to syndicate a deal. And of course, when I went to syndicate my first one, I, you know, I hadn't syndicated one before. So the only people that were going to invest in it were basically friends and family. And of course, I didn't have any family with money. Fortunately, um, I had some people that uh, were investors in my single families or new people that were investors in my single family. So this is where the uh, the growth starts to happen, right? Because now I've got investors that are satisfied. They're happy. They told other friends. The other friends have called me and said, you know, hey, do you have anything coming up? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. I'm going to syndicate this apartment building. Uh, minimum investment is 25000 And so I was able to raise, I think the down payment on that one, or the capital raise on that one was like, I don't know, six hundred grand or something like that for a 60-unit deal at the time. And, and so I raised that from people that I knew. And so you know, the, the key here is that first you got to prove yourself. Then when you go get money, you got to get money from people that trust you for other reasons. Either they're related to you, uh, you've known them since kindergarten, uh, or they're a friend of a friend, or they're a friend of an existing investor that already was investing with you. There's always got to be that some kind of connection, or they're not going to do it. You can't just go, you know, I'm going to go find an accredited investor or a family office and ask them to write me a million-dollar check. Not going to happen. Uh, so then, uh, you know, that's that's how I funded that first one. And then and then it just grows from there. Then the next deal, it was, you know, friends of more investors and then friends of friends of friends and friends of friends of friends of friends of friends. And that's just how it, that's just how it spreads. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree. So to kind of touch on that, though, um, most people end up starting off in single family like you know you you did and you know do fix and flips and kind of get into small multifamily what was the moment that you said aha like the aha moment in which you figured that multifamily was the vehicle to you know to expand you know i think it it happened uh somewhere around uh 2004 or 5 i was watching the market in california just turn completely ridiculous um, houses here were selling for $500,000 and renting for $1,500 a month. And that didn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, the numbers just don't add up. So, so I knew I needed to, to think of other places to invest. You know, is it, there has to be other states where, you know, the numbers aren't this messed up. But to go, you know, way outside of, you know, where I could easily get to, you know, with a short flight or car ride, uh, you know, to do that for a small house didn't make a lot of sense. So I figured the only way that this was really going to work is if I could concentrate, you know, a larger number of units into a smaller area. And I mean, maybe that meant I could buy 10 houses on the same street. You know, I didn't know. It was what anything I could find that I could figure out a way to get a little bit of scale because, you know, I didn't want to, you know, at first I was, I was flying over to Dallas and we were looking at houses. Like I was going to buy a rental house in Dallas, you know, one rental house in Dallas, it's a, you know, three and a half hour flight. Uh, it just kind of didn't make a ton of sense. So, um, uh, it just took a while, but you know, I, I had bought that one multifamily that, you know, I'd bought cause I'd read a book and it said multifamily is a great way to go. So I had done that one and I thought, geez, I just need to do this more. And, uh, and go bigger. And uh, it, it was an organic process. It wasn't like one day I was doing single family, the next day I go, ah, oh, I got a great idea. I'm going to go do this. Uh, it just kind of grew. Touching on when you said that, you pretty much were not able to do business in California because, because the numbers didn't make sense. How did you end up choosing that market that you expanded into? Because I know that 
when we chose our markets, we had to do a lot of market analysis, but I just want to know how you kind of figured out what markets were right. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, uh, at first it was really kind of anecdotal. You know, everybody was talking about Texas and everybody was saying how strong, you know, their market was and everybody was saying how, you know, they didn't have a big run up in prices. So that meant that maybe they weren't going to have a big collapse in prices. And, you know, around 0405 in California, I was looking at these prices going, this is ridiculous. These things are going to, these things are going to tank. There's no, you know, no sense in buying stuff around here. So thank God I didn't because about two years later they tanked. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't do that in, in Texas. You know, they, they were just kind of level, right? The prices never really went up all that much. They never really went down all that much. And I was looking for something that was stable. And, and you know, I had heard about Texas. I had read a little bit about it. But that was it. I had no extensive market research. And even if I would have had that data, I wouldn't have known how to interpret it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, that's, that's where I ended up. And, and, and I found that Texas was a very good, solid market. Uh, for me back then. And that's where we just, you know, because I was already there, I began to just focus and concentrate all of our efforts on acquisitions uh, in those major Texas uh, metro markets. That, that was where we really got our strongest foothold uh, in multifamily in the early years. You know, considering that we are in a pandemic and these are weird times, how has business been impacted during the last few months? Well, it's it's created an interesting K-shaped economy where you've got, you know, on, on one hand, you've got areas and sectors that are doing enormously well. And on area and then on the other hand, you have uh, areas and sectors that are doing enormously poorly. So uh, if you look at, you know, retail is a good example. If you're Amazon, life has never been so good. Uh, but if you're the corner mom and pop clothing store, you're hating it right now. And if you're, you know, if, if you're a restaurant, you're struggling. Uh, if you're an apartment owner in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, you've never seen things so great. But if you're an apartment owner in San Francisco, uh, you're worried about how you're going to avoid foreclosure. So it's, uh, it's really interesting how it's created, you know, basically two separate but Parallel, two parallel economies that are traveling in different directions. That's what this pandemic has done, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon. So you've got people moving out of expensive cities, uh, and not because they're afraid of the coronavirus, but because now that uh, their employer is afraid of the coronavirus, and they told you to go home and work there, you said, well, if I'm gonna work from home, why am I working from a $2 million, two-bedroom, one-bath home that's 900 square feet when I could work from a $500,000, 3,000-square-foot, four-bedroom, three-bath home with a swimming pool in Arizona? Uh, so that's what people are doing, and, and they're, they're dumping the big city in favor for a more affordable place. And they, what's different you know, than any time that that's ever happened before is this time they're packing their job with them in the suitcase. You know, before when they get to Phoenix, they got to go find a new job. Well, now you don't. Now you get to keep your Facebook job uh, where you're earning this high tech salary that was, uh, you know, allowing you to afford that two million dollar house to begin with. But you get to bring that paycheck to Arizona where, you know, rents are 20 percent of Arizona level incomes and probably 10 percent of San Francisco level incomes. So that's a new uh, and interesting dynamic that's occurred, and it's going to allow some runway for rent growth in those markets where people are moving to. 
So that's why we're really focusing our efforts on buying in those markets where people are moving to and avoiding those markets where people are moving from. Now, there could be some people out there who are really opportunistic. And at some point, you're going to see uh, a sea change where they're going to go, okay, prices in San Francisco or New York City or, you know, name your emptying out city here. Uh, they're going to, uh, the, these prices are going to trough out and maybe they're even going to see some prospects of job growth coming back or, you know, something like that. And there, people are going to say, you know, this is a good time to swoop in and, you know, scoop up some cheap properties and, you know, ride it all the way back up. Uh, I don't think that time is today, but there's going to be a day when somebody's going to say that and it's going to create new opportunities that, you know, a year ago you would have said would have been impossible. So it's, uh, it's, it's as much as it's destroyed a, a lot of things, it's also creating opportunities as well. Yeah, for sure. And I was reading an article the other day regarding class A properties and how a lot of the tenants were um, they're living in really small quarters, paying high monthly rents. And they're kind of thinking, why am I paying this much when all the amenities that I was really paying for are not even available now because of the COVID protocols and all the regulations. So is your buying criteria changed at all now that you know all that's going on and a lot of residents in class A are actually favoring class B and C assets? Um, has that affected your buying criteria at all over the last couple of months? Not that terribly. We were never in the luxury A market anyway. Uh, you know, if... Uh... And that's where you're gonna. That's where you're gonna find, uh, you know, most of that is in the in the ultra luxury is where people are gonna go. Well, geez, you know, why rent this apartment? I can go rent a house. Um, and so you're seeing, you know, home rents increasing and pressure on, you know, inventory in single family homes from that that uh, you know that sector of uh, of, of resident. Uh, but you know we've always kind of been in the A minus to to C uh, spectrum. Uh, now we're getting out of the C spectrum, and you know we'll maybe do C plus, especially if we can reposition it to a B. Uh, but uh, really, just kind of shying away from that C market. The C market is suffering from the service sector economy dynamic, right? This is where your restaurant workers and retail store folks and people that work at the theme park or the movie theater, you know, and they're all out of work. So the C properties are suffering, um, even in, even in cities that are otherwise doing really well, you know, those C properties are seeing a little bit of distress. Uh, but the B's, they're the benefactor of both sides. You know, they get, uh, uh, they get the A's that, you know, maybe struggle and move down to a B for a cheaper place, but they also get, uh, you know, they also get move up C's, uh, people who kept their job, uh, they're, they're moving into B's. So the B really right now is kind of the darling of the industry. And, and that's been our sweet spot. So no, we haven't changed our protocols, but certainly the market has come to us. I'm not sure if you've had problems with them paying rent or not, but how are you guys currently handling evictions? I was also in the same article that I was reading, I had saw that a lot of like it's just like a false rumor going around that landlords love to evict tenants, and in fact, it's actually something that we don't look forward to. I assume that you're pretty much working with the tenants. Do you mind kind of going into how you're handling that? Yeah, we hate evictions. No, no landlord likes to evict anyone. Uh, you know, all we want to do is uphold our end of the contract, which says that we're going to provide a comfortable place to live, and you know, maintain it, and upkeep, and pay the property taxes and the utilities. Uh, and uh, and we expect our tenants to uphold their end of the contract, which says they'll take care of it and they'll pay their rent. 
unfortunately, right now, uh, there's a lot of tenants that feel emboldened to violate the, uh, their side of the contract. And, you know, the, the really crappy thing about it is that the government is supporting them in doing so by giving them a free pass and taking away our only recourse uh, for those contract violations. So it's a, it's a challenging place to be, uh, for sure. When this first started, uh, the first thing we did is we sent a letter out to all of our residents saying, like, if you're impacted, you know, if your employment is impacted by COVID, uh, please let us know. And, you know, and if you can show us uh, proof that you, um, you've been impacted, uh, we're going to work with you. We're going to help you. We even gave them a, a gift card to a grocery store to help them buy some food, uh, you know, and that sort of stuff to really show, look, you know, we're kind of on the same team here. That worked out really well, and it helped our collections uh, uh, stay up because people were like, okay, these guys aren't just jerks, so I'm not going to, you know, just, you know, just fan off the rent. I'll at least try. Uh, but, you know, as this pandemic has gone on and gone on, it's, it's been a lot longer than anybody expected. Uh, they keep pushing back this eviction moratorium. So we're really, by and large, uh, in a lot of ways, we're prohibited from evicting people. And, and even if we uh, even if we're able to navigate the eviction process and process these evictions, the courts are so backlogged that, you know, that solution isn't uh, isn't all that uh, attractive. So, you know, we've, as a result, you know, geez, portfolio wide, we've got a pretty big portfolio. I mean, portfolio wide, uh, we're owed about a million dollars in back rent that's unpaid. Uh, you know, we've got thousands of units and it adds up. Uh, having said that, we still have properties that are having month over month collection high records. So, uh, you know, we, uh, we're, we're doing okay. Uh, some properties worse than others, uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. What needs to happen is the government needs to stop uh, implementing these eviction moratoriums because for a lot of folks, the only reason they're not paying their rent is because we can't do anything about it. It's not because they can't pay the rent or that they're not working. It's because they kind of look at it like, man, we don't have to. You can't do anything. Uh, so if they would stop that, that would solve about half the problem. Uh, and then the other half, uh, you know, we just have to work with people as best we can. There, you know, there are some new programs coming out now. The government funded uh, a pretty substantial size of uh, uh, money to each of the states to be able to distribute out in rental assistance. We're just now starting to see those programs come online. In fact, just yesterday, uh, you know, as we're recording this, I don't know when this is going to air, but the day before we're recording this, uh, Texas just opened up their uh, rental assistance program for applications. Uh, you know, California is about to do the same. Uh, so there's, uh, we're, we're starting to see a little bit of that happening and, you know, and that, that needs to happen. It's like, uh, you know, if, if somebody tells me uh, that I can't enforce my contract, then they should step into the shoes of the person who was in that contract and, uh, and fulfill their obligation. Uh, and, and maybe to an extent they will, we'll see. I agree. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's been difficult for a lot of people. And like you said, the government's been holding back on evictions and then of course trying to give stimulus checks and although people are receiving these checks some of them are not using them very wisely and to, to help pay rent but kind of moving back i know that you said you were you know trying to focus on buying in i guess like the sunbelt states you could say the states more of the southern side that less taxes a lot cheaper 
Uh, they're doing very well because a lot of people in these northern states are overpopulated states. They're moving. Um, are you like selling your properties in these northern states, just trying to reposition, or are you just more of more so focusing on buying in these areas? Yeah, we're really just focused on buying in uh, in these states where people are moving to, and that's that's really our our total focus. It's always been our focus, and and uh, for the most part, uh, these these locations are static. It's not like it's always changing. When I look at lists of the top places where people are moving, it's the usual suspects year after year. You know, sometimes one city will drop off and another one will come on. But for the most part, the places where we're buying have been popular for a while and they will be for a while. And and this is one of the reasons why I like employing this strategy is shifts in population trends change very slowly. Uh, versus the economy that can whip on a dime. You know, one day the economy is just awesome. The next day there's a coronavirus and everything's terrible. It literally happened that fast. But with population movements, you know, everybody started moving to Texas and Phoenix, uh, f- you know, 10 years ago. And uh, they're still doing it. And, you know, and, and now, you know, it's like I look at a population chart of Buffalo, New York. The population increased for like 100 years. And then it leveled off for like 25 years. And then for the next 75 years, it's been in decline. That's not a rapid, you know, movement from one direction to the other. This stuff is like turning around a battleship. And it's the same thing as going on here. I think that, you know, populations are leaving California. That's probably going to happen for a while. Not a good place to be. Uh, Populations are going to, you know, Idaho, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida, the Carolinas, Tennessee. That's probably not going to change anytime soon. They're leaving New York. That's probably not going to change anytime soon. Uh, So we actually didn't own any stuff in northern states, thankfully. Uh, except for one personal rental I have in uh, in Buff- one of the best neighborhoods of Buffalo, New York, and that that property, I'm not I'm going to keep that. That's my retirement plan. But uh, but you know, our portfolio is really centered in the southern half of the U.S. in those growth markets. And so yes, we are selling, uh, but we're selling because we've executed our business plan or we've captured an enormous amount of value that we want to harvest. Uh, so that we can do it over again. We don't just buy and hold and sit on it and you know and, and never think about it again. We're active investors where our objective is to maximize our investors' return, which means that you know we got to transact and we need to sell and and harvest our uh, you know harvest uh, the the seeds that we planted uh, years ago uh, and uh, and eat once in a while. Just to backtrack a little bit, I, I'm assuming that when you first started out in the single-family space and transitioned to the multifamily space, you had a small team. Uh, so fast forward to today, what does your operation look like today, um, at least before the virus? And then, obviously, how does how did that change after the virus? Yeah, I, uh, I started out as a team of one. Uh, I literally was chief cook and bottle washer. I did everything. Uh, you know, I, I wrote all the checks to vendors and I mean, every literally, literally everything. I was the only one, uh, I, I grew slowly. I mean, I first hire was a bookkeeper and I thought, gosh, this is just, this is going to be awful. I'm going to have to dedicate time to teaching my bookkeeper how to write checks and make the entries, you know, into QuickBooks and all these, all these bookkeeping tasks. I'm going to have to spend time teaching someone, but thank God it was such a great investment because after I was able to teach her how to do it, I never had to think about that again. Uh, and so that team, I, you know, grew really slowly. It probably, uh, I probably was on my own for 10 years. And then I had one employee for about five years before I hired my second one. Uh, 
when we were uh, flipping a hundred houses a year, when the uh, when the foreclosure debacle uh, was at its peak in 2009, 10, and 11, uh, we had 25 employees, and you know we had a construction division, we had an acquisitions department with multiple buyers, and and all kinds of stuff. So that that got really interesting. Uh, when that started to die off, we uh, we shut down the construction wing, and you know reduced down to about uh, about a dozen people. Uh, so where we are now, we're still at about that same dozen people, uh, you know, on the capital management and acquisitions disposition side. What's changed now is now we actually have our own property management company and we manage all of our own assets. So we've got 50-something employees now uh, in the property management company. So, you know, I guess all told, we're probably somewhere around 60 or 70 people, uh, give or take. So you've came a long way, of course, in these last 32 years. Uh, do you like have any current projects that you're working on at the moment or, or anything exciting that you're working on? Yeah, we've, uh, we've got a lot actually. We, uh, we closed on a 264 unit property in Tampa, Florida, uh, about four months ago. Uh, we closed on a 200 unit, uh, uh, class a minus property in Tucson, Arizona, about two or three weeks ago. Uh, we just raised a $50 million blind pool fund, so now we have $50 million of discretionary capital to spend in buying more multifamily assets. We're about to raise a $10 million sidecar to invest alongside that fund in, in some of our assets, and we just got a $10 million commitment from an institutional Israeli uh, LP. So a lot of stuff going uh, through the pipeline here these days, and it's keeping us uh, really busy of all of our shows is we'll go through an express round. I'll ask you about five total questions and it doesn't have to be a long response, but it'll, it'll all be tailored towards real estate. Is that okay? Go for it. Awesome. So the first question is what is the biggest mistake you've ever made and what did it teach you? Uh, biggest mistake was not understanding the power that an adverse economic cycle can have on your business plan. And, you know, it happened to me in, 2008, I bought my that 60-unit building that I bought. I bought it six months too early. I mean, I paid half of what the guy before me paid, uh, but I didn't appreciate how deeply uh, an adverse economy could could really really scar you. And about six months after I bought that property is when uh, the massive economic collapse of 2008 happened. You know, first was the real estate collapse. I got in after that and thought I did well. But the real estate collapse caused an economic collapse, and the economic collapse damaged the real estate even further. And I didn't appreciate the power of that. I also didn't quite understand um, how damaging it can be to have too much debt on the property. And, you know, it's like, gosh, when I first got started, I was 100% financing everything because I didn't have an option, right? I had no money. What else was I going to do? Uh, but, boy, you realize after a while that that is an enormously risky strategy, and it makes things a lot more difficult than they need to be. And uh, I, learned, I, I learned that lesson very, very deeply, and, uh, and uh, it, made, uh, it made life miserable for me for a few years while I was fighting that battle. Fortunately, I won the battle, uh, but uh, it was not fun. So my next question is, what is your why, and why is it important to have one? Geez, you know, my, my, my why is really, like, I have my own why and I have my business why. You know, my own why, of course, you know, I want to, yeah, you know, my own why is, you know, I, I want to have uh, uh, 
comfort and stability and security uh, for my family and our future. Uh, that's that's really kind of the, the personal why. Uh, the business why is I like to help other people accomplish their investment objectives. And, and that's exactly what we do here is, you know, we're not a real estate investment firm. We're a financial services firm. We offer investment products to our clients. We use real estate as our vehicle. But really, the, make no mistake about it, this is all about them handing us a check. And at some point in the future, we're handing them one back that's bigger than the one they handed us. And that helps them accomplish their goal. And, and whether that goal is for them to you know, have retirement income or build wealth or fund their kids' college education or whatever that goal is, if we can play a role in helping them accomplish that, that's satisfying. I've had people ask me this question. Once I reach the point where, you know, you don't really need the money anymore, is there a reason that you keep going? Is there some type of uh, maybe a philanthropic reason that you're going to just continue? Uh, good question. I'll have to answer that after I get there. Uh, you know, what you find is that, uh, that, that life is much more of a journey than a destination. And, you know, as you get more money, you just accumulate more expenses. You'll have more houses. Uh, you know, I like airplanes. That's, uh, that's an expensive hobby. Uh, and when you start adding all that up, I haven't gotten to that point where I could say I've had enough yet. You have to catch, catch me in about 10, 15 years. Maybe I'll I will do. We'll that. that. <laughs> um, so my third question is, what are your goals for this year? Yeah. Uh, well, this year we've, uh, uh, my goal is to find some, um, really good assets to acquire for our fund. Uh, you know, we've had, a, a, a hundreds of clients that have entrusted us with, you know, almost, uh, what, over $50 million. And uh, we want to spend it very, very wisely and get some great investments to be able to carry out the objective uh, of that fund. And that's my goal for this year is to, is to find those assets and make those acquisitions so that uh, we can do it again next year. Favorite book. And I'd like, if you don't mind, if you have one for your personal life and then if you have one that's business-related, uh, the hands-off investor written by some guy named, uh, oh, I can't, uh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, you mean some book I didn't write. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that one too. Uh, you know, gosh, I, I'll tell you, it's interesting. I, um, I, I haven't read a book in a long time because I just don't have the time. Uh, it takes me forever to read a book. And now I've got one, you know, I usually only read books when I go on a trip somewhere. And now I'm three trips in on one book and still haven't, I'm only halfway through it. And it's a book on weather theory for pilots. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's funny when, when, uh, when I was in law enforcement, I didn't watch cops on TV and, you know, now that I'm out of that business, now I like watching cops. But, uh, you know, when I'm now, I, you know, I'm deep into real estate. I don't really like reading real estate books anymore. You know, it's like, I live this every day. I don't need to read a real estate book. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just don't really have any, uh, that it's been so, so long. And there's probably so many more great books that have been written since I was really into reading a lot of books, but I'll, I'll say, uh, you know, a couple of them that had impact on me, of course, you know, uh, on a personal side was rich dad, poor dad. That was a, a book that really kind of, it set my, uh, it reset the way I thought about a lot of things. And it was early in my career when this book came out and allowed me to kind of figure out a little bit more about my why, which was really cool. Uh, so I, I always have to mention that one and recommend that one. 
Um, there's another book that, from a business perspective that I really like, cause maybe because it's one of the more recent books that I've read. Uh, and it was a book called TED Talks. And uh, it was written by the guy that uh, is the head of the TED Talk organization. And it just talks about you know, delivering public speeches. And the reason why I found that to be so valuable is that's what this business is. It's about making connections with people. It's about being a thought leader. It's about people knowing you and respecting you for what you know and who you are and what you do. And part and parcel with that is, uh, you know, you have to you have to give talks about what you're doing and whether that's on a podcast like this or standing on a stage in front of a thousand people. And uh, I've done plenty of both. Uh, but I found that uh, there was a lot of interesting information in that book about uh, giving presentations uh, that, you know, in a lot of ways kind of just made me realize I was doing a lot of things right, but also helped me refine my style a little bit and pick up on a few extra little tidbits that can help keep my audience interested in what I'm about to say. So that was pretty cool. My last question for the Express Round is, do you have a morning routine? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I just get up, read the newspaper, and then get ready and go to work. That's it. That's, uh, you know, I, I wish I could say that it was something a lot more interesting than that, but uh, uh, it's, it's not. I usually, uh, as soon as I finish reading the newspaper, I can look through my emails. I've got 100-something emails waiting for me usually. I try to knock out as many of those as I can before I head out to the office. And by the time I get to the office, which is only about a 10-minute drive, I've probably got 50 more. <laughs> so... Uh, that's that's pretty much my routine. Get caught up on all that busy work. Mentioned it a little bit, but could you maybe go into what your favorite sources of information are, um, just to kind of stay updated on the market and the economy? I know you mentioned the newspaper. Yeah, you know, I get I get pinged from every conceivable direction with information, and you know, of course, I get all kinds of email newsletters. You know, like from you know just just standard like business and and real estate ones, like from Globe Street and stuff like that. Uh, you know, our local newspaper uh, kind of keeps me in tune with what's kind of going on in the community. Uh, and um, uh, but my my real information comes from, uh, you know, just a variety of, you know, just always having all this stuff coming at you and filtering through it to find out stuff that's important. And so, you know, brokers will send out like, oh, here's the top headlines for you know, Las Vegas. And I can really oh, look, this is happening. That's happening. Or, you know, or here's our latest report on, uh, you know, different markets across the country with job growth and income growth and all that kind of different stuff. So just reading that. And it, it seems like, you know, I don't get my eyes off of a screen for very many minutes in the day because there's always some information coming from some source somewhere uh, that's trying to educate me on something. So uh, un unfortunately, it's a, um, it's a it's an exhausting process to, uh, to be well informed. If my brothers don't have any more questions, like I said, we really appreciate your time. We really do appreciate your time. It was definitely a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you. Um, only last thing, if someone wanted to reach out to you, where can they reach you at? Best place to reach you. And also, if they wanted to buy and, and learn from your book, where's the best place for them to buy that at? Yeah, sure. The, uh, the book's available at biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book. It's biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book. That's where you can order it directly from the publisher. And if you order from there, they give you some bonus content, which is kind of cool. Um, it's also available on Amazon and bookstores everywhere. If you can find a bookstore that's open these days. Um, for contacting us, uh, our website is praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. Uh, accredited investors can go to investwithpraxis.com to learn more about 
uh, our latest offerings uh, and check that out over there. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at Investor Brian Burke. Hope you have a great day and an amazing 2021. We appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. It was an honor talking to you, and we look forward to seeing what you accomplish this year and in the future. Good stuff, guys. Thanks for having me be a part of this today. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Real Life Monopoly podcast with the Donis Brothers. If you want to learn more about what we do, make sure to visit our website, www.donisinvestmentgroup.com. And if you aren't already, make sure to follow us on all platforms at Donis Ventures. Let's be great today. Have a good one.